Everywhere you go these days, just to be able to function in society, you've got to have some kind of government-issued ID, don't you? You've got to be able to kind of prove who you are. You know, if you want to rent a car, if you want to um, use your credit card, if you want to get on an airplane, just to do most things, you've got to have that government-issued ID and say, yes, I am who I say I am. There's, we had friends that are, stayed at our house this last week, and they were supposed to catch a plane early Wednesday morning to fly back out to Seattle. And they went out to eat the previous night, and young lady, she left her purse at the restaurant. And by the time she realized she had left it at the restaurant, the restaurant had already closed. And she was supposed to be on a plane the next morning, so she's frantically calling the airline, everything. they got to move the flight back. She's got to be over. Thankfully, the restaurant still had her purse. She was able to get there. And then in her purse is the government-issued ID, that picture ID, so that she could get on the plane later that day. Because nobody just takes your word for it that you are who you say you are you got to be able to prove it. It's not enough just for me to say, hey, my name's Steve Greenlee. They, they want to know, no, well, I need to see some ID, sir. I need to be able to verify this. I need to know. Nobody just believes me because they don't know who I am. Come to think of it, how do you know who you are? How do you know who other people are? You know, because someone told you, they said, hey, this is who you are, and so you just take their word for it because the government gave you some ID and there's some number on there that corresponds, and okay, this is who I am. You know, those things can be forged, and you know people lie. So how do you know who you are? How do you know who people are? To answer that question, you got to go all the way back to the beginning, not just to when you were born, all the way back to the very beginning. To understand who you are and who people are, you must go back to the one who created us. And so this morning, we're going to turn to a famous psalm, Psalm 139. Go ahead, turn there, Psalm 139. We're in a series titled Straight Talk, and we're examining just big theological questions, uh, foundational questions that provide a framework for how we ought to think, uh, how we ought to think about big questions, big issues in life, because answering these questions correctly is essential to thinking rightly. And we know that right thinking produces right living. And so this morning, the question is, how should we think about people? And when looking at how we should think about people, it also informs how we think about ourselves. And so we'll begin with this wonderful, beautiful psalm, Psalm 139, the first 16 verses. The psalmist writes, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heaven, you are there. If I take my bed in Sheol, 
you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. For your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. It's a very familiar psalm. Most of you, I'm sure, have probably heard this several times before, but sometimes I wonder if we've ever really listened to it at all. See, we need ears to hear just what God is speaking to us through this psalm. A lot, a lot of these verses are recognizable. You know, they might come to your mind. You have searched me and known me. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? You, you knitted me together in my innermost parts, in my mother's womb. Common verses. And the, the, psalm, the psalmist, he talks about how God created us from nothing. And because of that, God knows us better than anyone else, better than we know ourselves, better than anyone else could ever know us because he created us from nothing. And right now, we're living in a culture where is, there is this crisis of identity. I mean, you, you turn on the TV, you talk about it, you read the, the newspaper, internet, you look at articles, and the culture is talking about identity. How can you know who you are? How can you know who people are? And you know, with that, ideas have consequences. And one of the consequences that our culture is dealing with right now is the idea that our culture is able to define people. And they'll tell you, yeah, we, we can tell you, we have labels, we have things. One of the basic tenets in all of life is that we are created by God and in the image of God. All people, everywhere, people you don't like, people you can't stand, people you love, people you adore, every single person to walk on the face of the earth, created by God and in the image of God. We're all image bearers of God. And the psalmist tells us that. And because people are born, because they are created with the image of God, all people have dignity, all people have worth, all people have value. And this isn't, this isn't just something that we just ascribe to people. This is naturally inherent in them because they have been made as image bearers of God. That you can't earn that worth, that you don't deserve that value, that that dignity is not just somehow um, attained, but that God in creating people, he created all of us with that. This is why it's wrong to murder, because to murder someone is to attack the image of God with which people carry. God formed every human being uniquely. That's what the psalmist says, and we see it. Bobby was talking about in our Sunday school class this morning, just the thumbprint and how uniquely we're all made, how no two people are alike. 
that he's formed all of us in such a way that to live out our design life, who he has made us to be, causes other people to look and to say, you know what, I know God better because of you. Because you're living out the life that God has made you to live and created you to live and designed you to live, then others come along and say, I now understand God better because of the way you live your life. And so we got to see people that way and understand, okay, they need to know their image bearers of God. Their first need is connect, connecting with God. But our culture tells us something different. Our culture says we can tell you who you are because our culture says, you know, you weren't created at all. You were a cosmic accident. You're a bunch of protein and carbon and amino acids that all kind of bounce together at just the right time and just the right space. And over a span of millions of years, there was this molecular dice game going on and somehow it evolved into you. Isn't that special? (laughs) And then because of that, Culture says, you know, since you are just this cosmic accident, since you are just a byproduct of this miracle of life, that then the miracle of your life is no different than the miracle of that shrub's life. You're no different than a shrub, a tree, an animal, an insect. That it's life, and, and we've all kind of evolved into this. You have no more right to be here, no more significance than any other form of life. And if you don't believe me, then I want to remind you, do you remember about three years ago when there was the boy, four-year-old boy with his mom at the zoo, and he escaped from his mom's watchful eye for a moment and ended up in the gorilla cage? Do you remember that? And so you had this four-year-old boy in the gorilla cage, and the zookeepers had to make the very difficult decision to put the gorilla down. Because even if the gorilla tried to love the boy or was being nice to the boy, in the gorilla's strength, it would evidently harm the boy, right? It would obviously kill the boy. And do you remember how people responded to that? Do you remember how many people were cheering for the gorilla? Do you remember that? And there were a lot of people blaming the mom, you know? How could the mom let this four-year-old boy escape? I don't think those people have ever been with a four-year-old boy. I mean, I've got a five-year-old boy at home, and I can tell you, he's, he doesn't walk anywhere. I mean, everywhere he goes, he's running, and he's into everything, and he has the attention span of a gnat, so he's here, and then there, and then there, and you can't follow him. Yeah. Other people, they wanted to blame the zookeeper, you know? They said, well, you know, what's, what's wrong with these zookeepers? This, this thing should, should have been child-proof, these, these, this cage. How could he have possibly gotten in there? You know, I, will tell, I, will, I remember when all three of my kids were toddlers, and I think I could have hired them out as child-proof testers. I could have put their picture on some kind of thing and said, hey, if these three couldn't have gotten into it, then it really is child-proof. Because electric socket outlets and uh, those things that go on doors so, so supposedly you can't open the door. They got through all that. They were going through it, around it, over it, under it. It didn't matter. They were getting in. If they wanted to, they were getting in. But you had people cheering for the gorilla's life and blaming, trying to point fingers. And they were saying, hey, the gorilla should be spared because he's got just as much right to be here as the four-year-old boy. That's our culture. That's our world. 
and we think that it just happened. It's been that way for a really long time. Okay, do you remember the story in the Bible of the, um, the demoniac in the, in the Gerasenes? And, and Jesus comes and he heals the demoniac. There's this man, he's got just a crowd of demons inside of him. And he casts out the demons and the demons go into the pigs. You remember this? And then all the pigs become suicidal and they jump off the cliff. But the man is healed. Do you remember how the pig farmers and the townspeople reacted to the miracle? They were frightened, they were afraid, and they were upset. Why? Because they valued the pigs more than the restoration of this man's life. And they said, Jesus, get out of here. Leave our town. It wasn't just that. Do you remember the Pharisees? On the Sabbath day, they bring a man with a withered hand to the synagogue, and they set him right up front in the synagogue so that when Jesus passes by into the synagogue, that he has to see this man with the withered hand on the Sabbath. And they're testing Jesus, right? Because they know their laws say, you can't do any work on the Sabbath. So Jesus, if you see this man right here, you're just going to have to walk right on by. You can't heal him, so we're going to trap you. We're going to set up this trap to see how you respond to him. And he comes, and he walks by, and he sees the man, and then they pose the question to him. So what are you going to do, Jesus? We're trying to trap you here. Is it, is it okay to heal this man on the Sabbath? Because they think they've got him. And Jesus says, which of you, if you have a sheep or an ox, and he falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not go and rescue it? The obvious implication is, yes, of course you would. You would do that for a sheep or an ox, but you don't want me to do anything for this man? See, we've evolved so much as a society, haven't we? We've changed so much. Now there's a boy in a gorilla cage, and we value the boy or the gorilla. We still have the argument. We've evolved so much where we will make laws protecting spotted eagle eggs, but not laws protecting the life of unborn children. But this is the thinking. The culture sees people as a cosmic accident. And when you're a cosmic accident, you can do anything you want with people. See, culture does not know who you are. Culture cannot define who you are, and they try to convince you that you can be defined by labels. And, the, and, and our culture is good at putting labels on people, that your gender defines you. Man, woman, that your ethnicity defines you, that your status as legal or illegal defines you. That the world can tell you who you are because, hey, you really have no idea who you are. I'm here to tell you, don't let culture define you. Culture cannot define you. And we are lost in this crisis of identity. And culture comes along and says, I will tell you who you are. I've got a label for that. And then it says something else sometimes. Culture will say, all right, we've got labels. Here's the ones you ought to use. Pick anyone you want. And we're so generous, we will let you define yourself, right? You define you. You can be anything you want to be if you want it bad enough. No, you can't. No, you can't. I was told when I was a kid that if I bought these really expensive pair of tennis shoes that I could be like Mike. 
you can't. I bought the shoes. I could never jump like Michael Jordan. Could never dunk a basketball. Could never be as tall as him or as athletic as him. Never be, I could never be like Mike. It just doesn't work that way. But our culture is saying, go ahead, you can define yourself however you want. Whatever you want to be, however you want to identify yourself as, that's fine. If you don't believe me, watch this video. Not too long ago at a college campus in Washington State. There's been a lot of talk about identity lately, but how far does it go? And is it possible to be wrong? We went to the University of Washington to find out. Are you aware of the debate happening in Washington State around um, the ability to access bathrooms, locker rooms, spas based on gender identity and gender expression? I, I think people should be able to have access to the facility. I think uh, bathrooms could and potentially should be gender neutral because there doesn't need to be a classification for differences. I think people definitely should have the ability to go into whichever locker room they want. Uh, I feel like at least public universities should do their best to accommodate for those who do not have a specific uh, gender identity. You know, whether you identify as male or female and whether your sex at birth is matching to that, you should be able to utilize the resources. So if I told you that I was a woman, what would your response be? Good for you, okay, like, <laughs> yeah. Nice to meet you. I'll be like, what? <laughs> really? I don't have a problem with it. I'd ask you how you came to that conclusion. If I told you that I was Chinese, what would your response be? I mean, I might be a little surprised, but I would say, good for you. Like, yeah, be who you are. <laughs> I would maybe think you had some Chinese ancestor. I would ask you how you similarly came to that conclusion and why you came to that conclusion. Um, I would have a lot of questions. Just because on the outside, I would assume that you're a white man. If I told you that I was seven years old, what would your response be? Um, I wouldn't believe that immediately. Uh, I probably wouldn't believe it, but I mean, I, it wouldn't really bother me that much to go out of my way and tell you no, you're wrong. I'd just be like, oh, okay, he wants to say he's seven years old. If you feel seven at heart, then, <laughs> then so be it. Yeah, good for you. So if I wanted to enroll in a first grade class, do you think I should be allowed to? Uh, probably not, I guess. I mean, unless you haven't completed first grade up to this point and for some reason need to do that now. If that's where you feel like mentally you should be, then I feel like there are communities that would accept you for that. I would say so long as you're not hindering society and you're not causing harm to other people, I feel like that should be an okay thing. If I told you I'm six feet, five inches, what would you say? That I would question. Why? <laughs> because you're not. <laughs> no, I don't think you're six foot five. If you truly believed you're six five, I don't think it's harmful. I think it's fine if you believe that. It doesn't matter to me if you think you're taller than you are. <laughs> so you'd be willing to tell me I'm wrong? I wouldn't tell you you're wrong. No, but I say that um, I don't think that you are. I feel like that's not my place as like another human to say someone is wrong or to draw lines or boundaries. No, I mean, I wouldn't just go like, oh, you're wrong, you're like that's wrong to believe in it. Cause I mean, again, it doesn't really bother me what you want to think about your height or anything. So I can be a Chinese woman. You, 
<laughs> um, sure. But I can't be a six foot five Chinese woman. Yes. If you thoroughly debated me or explained why you felt that you were six foot five, uh, I feel like I would be very open to saying that you were six foot five or Chinese or a woman. It shouldn't be hard to tell a 5'9 white guy that he's not a 6'5 Chinese woman. But clearly it is. Why? What does that say about our culture? And what does that say about our ability to answer the questions that actually are difficult? You know, I've spoken at a college conference for the past couple years and I will tell you that issue right there is huge. The college students, there's something going on and they say, I know this is not right, but who am I to tell them that they can't say that or that that's not true? I mean, what harm does it really do if that guy wants to be a 6'5 Chinese woman? And that's a real issue. And then there's another issue going on that sometimes we in the church, the people of faith, can look at people like that and we just dismiss them and we write them off and we say they're just crazy lunatics who are, who are messed up instead of seeing them as image bearers of God who need the gospel. You see, this is what identity does is it helps us to see people through the lens of God, to understand people who they really are so that we were able to speak clearly and definitively, no, you're not a six foot five Chinese woman. And at the same time, we speak lovingly and truthfully and says, you know what, God has made you and he has designed you with a purpose. And if you know that purpose, if you know who God has made you to be, that's how you can live your best life. Not, not that we just dismiss them or write them off. You know, this, this goes back to Nehemiah when he is on his knees every day praying, saying, God, will you forgive me for what I've allowed Israel to become? And he had never even been to Israel. But he says, I'm, I'm at fault here. He, he points the finger at himself. He doesn't just point the finger at culture and say, culture's messed up. He says, I'm part of the problem because I have not engaged the way I was meant to engage. See, culture does this thing to us. It does this trick to us. It says you can define yourself and you can be whoever you want to be. Whatever identity you want to choose, just define yourself that way. And then it does this trick to us and it says this, if it doesn't work out, it's because you didn't want it bad enough. Because you didn't try hard enough. Because there was something in you that maybe didn't really want it at all. And now not only do you lack identity, but now you're a failure. And let me show you where this ends, okay? Because we're seeing it just play out right in front of our eyes. The other year, we had a man win woman of the year, okay? This is how this plays out. This is how this ends. I mean, last week we talked about how do we think about the world, and one of the points that was made was, hey, we believe that God created the world, and as stewards of the world, we want to know everything about the world that we possibly can. So as Christians, we love science, we embrace science, because it reveals to us more about the artist who made the art. 
And so we look at genetic science and we say, hey, it is really clear. You're either XX or XY. Those are the options. The transgender thing, that's a myth. You can have all the surgery you want to have, but your chromosomes aren't changing. You're either XX or XY. But culture has told these people, no, you can be whatever you want to be. Whatever you feel like you are inside, just go. Have the surgery. Do whatever it takes. If you want it bad enough, you can be that. And so they chase things, and what happens? There's a near 20% suicide rate of people who call themselves transgender because it doesn't fill the void. It doesn't fill the need. People all over are trying to do things they were never intended to do, trying to be things they were never intended to be. And the world tells you, just go and find your own identity. And if that one doesn't work, try another one. And if that one doesn't work, try another one and try another one and try another one. Eventually, you'll find who you are. And what we've been left with is we've been orphaned in this cosmos of culture that confuses abandonment with freedom. Do you see that? People all over, they feel like they're chasing freedom, but they've been abandoned as orphans in a society that says, go do whatever, do whatever, do whatever, without anyone to lovingly come alongside and just speak truth to them. And say, no, you are created with a purpose. You are an image bearer of God. This is how we must see people. The world leaves us orphans, but the Bible tells us a very different story. The Bible says that before you were ever here, before you were ever created, before you were ever a being, that you were loved. That in God's great creation story, that you were a part of it right from the beginning. That before the foundations of the earth, he had you in mind. God thought of you. And what you would become. And there is no difference between what God thought and what happened in reality. And sometimes we have a hard time understanding that because we try to make something and it never turns out the way we intend it. At least not for me. I mean, I'm not very skilled. Pastor Donnie could tell you this. I'm not very skilled. But if I were to try to make something, let's just say that I try to make a bookshelf. Okay, this would be very hard for me. I get some wood, I get a hammer, nail screws, whatever. I try to nail the hammer or nail the, the, the wood together. And I would end up with some bookshelf that probably looked like this. You know, and I'd put some heavy books over here and kind of straighten it up. And I'd say, eh, that's good enough. That'll do. Sometimes we look at creation and all that God has made and we, and we think that God might have done the same thing. That he might have looked at everything and said, eh, that's good enough. Worse, we look at who we are and how God made us. And we know all the inconsistencies of our life. We know all the evil in our life. We know everything about us. And we think that God might have looked at us and said, eh, close enough. See, the good news of the gospel, as we look back at the creation story, it tells us that everything God did, that when he had made something, that he stopped and he said, it is good. And that's a Hebrew idiom, okay? It's this, um, it, it, it's a part of speech, a figure of speech that's very difficult to translate, okay? It's not like a literal, it is good. It's this phrase. In fact, in modern vernacular, a, a 
Possibly a more accurate way to put it would be that each day God looked at what he had made and he went, yes, that's just what I wanted. Yes. Do you understand that when God made you and then when God made the person sitting beside you and when God made those people in the video, when God made all people everywhere, when God knitted you together in your mother's womb, That before you breathed your first breath, before you cried your first cry, before you opened your eyes for the very first time, that God the Father, he looked at you right when you were born and he said, yes, just what I intended to make. You're just who I wanted you to be. And now I've got this purpose and these plans and I've got designs for your life. I will give you the identity that you need to have. See, he knows better than anybody else, which means that only he can define you. You let the world try to define you, it will fail. You try to define yourself, you will fail. He's the only one who can define you, which means if you don't know Jesus Christ, you really can't possibly know who you are. Because the creator defines the creation. The artist defines the art. That's the point that John was trying to get across in 1 John chapter 3. He's got the church and he's old at this point. And he writes, see what kind of love the Father has given to us? That we should be called children of God and so we are. That is what we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. It couldn't identify him, so it can't identify you. Beloved, we are God's children now. This is what John's writing. And do you hear him? He says that based on that relationship with God, we are given the right to be called children of God. I mean, we, we live in a world, hey, everyone's a child of God. Not according to this verse. According to this verse, you are brought into that relationship, and then God gives you the right to be called a child of God. This is what God says about you that you are mine. It's far more important what God says about you than what you say about you. You can call yourself a a six foot five Chinese woman, but what really matters is what God says about you, how God defines you. you. You may look at yourself and you may say, I'm worthless. You may look in the mirror and say, I'm ugly. Say, I don't know what I bring to the table. I'm no good. I'm a failure. You may say these things about you. But if you have been brought to the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ, God the Father looks at you and he says, you are a worthy son. You are a worthy daughter. That you are beautifully, beautiful and you've been wonderfully made by a master artist that you're not a failure, that I have plans for your life. Believe what God says about you. Believe what God says about you. And as we move from justification, being made right with God, toward glorification where we will be completely conformed into the image of Christ, to the image of the Son, we go through this stage called sanctification where we are being, over time, conformed and ought to look more and more like Jesus. And so believing in God tells us that we are loved, that we are made with a purpose, 
that we have gifts so that we can work in partnership with God as God continues to unfold his kingdom in this world. And as you live that, then you begin to know your value. Then you begin to know your worth. Then you begin to believe what God says about you because you are living your identity. You are being who God has called you to be. But a lot of us, we don't want to put in the hard work. And so we go along and we just accept the names, the labels that culture gives us. Illegal, homosexual, transgender, black, white, man, woman. And, we, and, and this is what we hang our hat on. We say this, fundamentally, this core is who I am. But the identity that God gives you is more than that. It's deeper than that. It's more significant than that. But those are the only identification cards that, that our culture can hand out because it doesn't know better. We ought to know better. See, we know as we come along, as we talk about the four chairs that we've been, been looking at, th this is a prime example that we see people where they're at and we say, okay, what do you need most in life? And you can be totally lost and you can be totally out there and you can believe the wackiest things. But as believers, as Christians, we don't dismiss them and just cast them aside or label them as nut jobs or wacky or lunatics or whatever. No, we look at them and say, the thing you need most is to connect with God. Your identity right now is not being lived out. It's misunderstood. You don't get it. To understand who you are, we understand, we see them, that you must connect with God. And then once you take that step, what you need most is then connect to the family of God, that God has adopted you into a family, that this life is not, to, is not meant to be lived by itself, but it's meant to be lived in context of community, in a family with people who love you and value you and see you the way that you're meant to be seen. And then from that, that you need to grow, that you need to learn more about who you are and who God is and who God has made you to be, that you can begin to serve people in the church and you, and you can see the value and the dignity that comes from serving people. And we see people here. And then sometimes we see people and say, what you need most to really begin to understand who you are in Christ is to cross that cultural divide and then to begin to be those workers in the harvest field and to go out and to engage culture and to serve culture and to speak truth into culture, not to hide back from it, but to really get involved in it. And then from there to take people along with you and say, let me teach you how to be a disciple maker. Come along with me as we go to the crisis pregnancy center, as we do this and do that, because I want to show you what it looks like to love people and show them that they are, in fact, image bearers of God, created with a purpose, with value, with dignity, simply for being human, because God has bestowed that upon them. He's created those intricately woven within them. There is deep identity in God that cannot be found anywhere else. But sometimes we, we, we can be lazy, and we just say, Mom, Dad, can you tell me who I am? Or maybe they did back when you were a kid and you're still trying to live up to it. And, and you think, this is what I've got to be. I've got to please mom and dad. And our parents try and, and, and they do their best. And sometimes they, make, they may speak it right and speak truth to us, but sometimes they miss it and they just impart their brokenness onto us. And now we've got their brokenness that we're trying to live up to too and that doesn't work out. We get frustrated and sometimes we ask a spouse, can you tell me who I am? Just tell, what, what, what am I supposed to do? Who am I meant to be? 
but they can't either. They, they'll say, no, I can't tell you that. Or, or, or they say, yeah, well, you do this. Here's, here's the label. Here's what you ought to do. And you get frustrated because that's not who you are either. And the relationship sours and it breaks down. You might have even asked the church, hey, who am I supposed to be? And the church comes along and it says, hey, you're a Christian. Love God. Serve the church. Live a good life. You'll be good. And they leave you just arrested in spiritual childhood. And you say, there's got to be more to life than this. God, he must have saved me for more than this. I want to go back to that garrison demoniac again. You remember when Jesus gets off the boat and he runs into, he comes into this town and he meets the man. And the man, he's not in his right mind. I mean, he hasn't even worn clothes. He's been naked all this time and he's got this crowd of demons in him. And Jesus asked him a question. Do you remember the question that Jesus asked? He looked at the man and he said, what is your name? What is your name? You remember the man's response? He said, I am legion, for I am many. There is a crowd in me. You see, the man didn't give Jesus his name. He just gave him his problem. And that's what the world does to us. The world doesn't give you a name. It just gives you a label. You're divorced, you're an adulterer, you're a liar, you're a homosexual, you're an illegal, you're whatever the label is. The world does not give you a name, it just gives you a description. That's not an identity. One of the moments of healing is when Jesus helps the man to understand that's not who you are, that that, that's not your name. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians, and such were some of you. All those labels, maybe that's used to be the way you defined your life. They don't need to define your life that way anymore because Jesus brings an identity that you didn't even know you had, a meaning, a purpose that you didn't even know you needed. But see, you can't know who you are until you know Jesus. You can't know who you are until you know Jesus. And so as we look at people who don't know Jesus, what do they need most? We see them as image bearers of God, not living out the identity that they ought to be living. And what do they need? They need to connect with God. That's it. Because God gives you an identity, not just some government photo ID card with a number on it. But he gives you an identity, a reason for being, a purpose in life. He tells you that you are made with dignity and worth and value simply for being created, simply for being you. You see, the one who made you first is the one who loves you best. And only he can tell you who you are. Heavenly Father, We thank you that you are a good God, a God who speaks into all of our issues, all of our problems, all of our insecurities, 
all of our overconfidence, all of our arrogance, all of our pride. And you tell us the truth. You tell us who we are, who we're made to be, how we're to treat others, how we're to view others, how we're to view ourselves. God, God, forgive us when we don't see people the way you see people. Forgive us when we accept the labels that the world offers because we're, we're lazy and we just go with it. Forgive us for when we try to define ourselves as if the art could somehow define itself. God, cause us, impress upon us, as the psalmist writes in in Psalm 139, to look to you, to see the one who knitted us together, who thought of us before we were ever born, because God, you loved us first, and so you tell us who we are, and God, help us to share that with others as we share you with others. We need your help to do that, so we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit, and through the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ, whom we love. Amen.